The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to From the Pulpit on the Restoration Radio Network. This weekly show will be a presentation of the most informative sermons, conferences, and lectures from Catholic clergy on critical topics for Roman Catholics to find their way and to hold their faith during this horrendous crisis, the reality and the growth of the modernist heresy, which surrounds and threatens to engulf faithful Catholics. From the Pulpit is underwritten by True Restoration, with articles, books, and videos available at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating costs of the radio network are underwritten by True Restoration, our particular show is truly listener-supported. We have annual radio subscriptions for the subscriber of every level, available by clicking the Donate button at truerestoration.org. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on blogtalkradio.com slash restorationradio and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration on all social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, LinkedIn, and Pinterest by following us using the social buttons on truerestoration.org. Tonight, we will hear a conference from His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan on the nature of the Catholic Church and why it is distinguishable as the one true church from all the false religions of the world. We will also hear a sermon from His Excellency on the Holy Rosary and that remembering to pray it daily is the link to our Lord and Our Lady. Since we now enter the month of October, the month of the Holy Rosary, It is a very fitting sermon to kick off this new month on From the Pulpit. We want to spend uh, some time talking about um, the real important question of, well, of all the religions that there are in the world, in our own country, which one is the true one? And first of all, uh, just removing the obvious ones that are non-Christian, of those that claim to be Christian, which one out of all of these, I figure... A conservative um, counting would yield about one major denomination for every day of the year in America, which is a remarkable... By major, I mean it would have thousands of members and offices and paid officers and all the rest of it. That's a remarkable thought, if you consider that, that you could literally go from one end of the year to the next, jumping from one religion to another... Until, and until you came to the end of the year, you wouldn't run out of, of religions. Then after, there'd be the storefront churches and house churches and all the rest of it. Um, which one out of all these is, is the one true church which Christ has established? Um, our country is... Um, traveling around the world it gives me a, a renewed appreciation for this. Our country is um, unique, I would say. Pretty much unique in its attitude towards religion, America is a still an extremely religious place. In comparison with Europe, where there are all these beautiful churches and there's a, there's a lot of... You see religion on the street, but the people are not religious. They have no interest at all in religion, one way or another, and nobody goes to church. Uh, 
comparatively speaking. There's a very, very small percentage in England or in, in, in Europe. In, um, South, in Central and, and South America, Catholicism is, is, is the, the, the major religion, religion, but the different Protestant sects, which have been evangelizing very, very aggressively over the last oh, 20 years or so since the changes, have made incredible inroads. But even then, uh, it, it's, it's, you can't say that there is a national, kind of a part of the national personality is to be religious. Part of the, the Hispanic culture is to have a great devotion to uh, the saints and to the Blessed Virgin and to be what we call cultural Catholics. At certain times they go to church in, during a lifetime. But it wouldn't be the same thing as in America. In America, people are religious. They're interested in religion. They go to church on Sundays. Most people, the majority of Americans, go to church, if not every Sunday, at least more Sundays than not, which is a remarkable thought. Americans spend a tremendous amount of time, then, and energy, but also money in religion. Sometimes in entertaining seminarians or their families from other countries who have come here now to be ordained, giving them a little tour of Cincinnati, they're always, especially the ones from Europe, are surprised. All these churches, little Protestant churches everywhere. There's nothing like that in Europe at all. There's everyone is in, in this country, most people, uh, the majority, are, are truly interested in religion. In other words, we are religious people still, which is to our benefit. That's good. The, uh, the bad part about that is that no one can agree on what, what religion it should be. I, the, uh, the divisions within the traditional movement are a little bit, in that sense, of a microcosm of the larger divisions in American society. No one can agree. We, we, um, yes, we want to follow God and please our Lord, save our souls, but all these religions, you take the two of the 365 major Christian denominations in this country, um, disagree about how you do save, save your soul, how you get to heaven, whether or not there is a hell. Um, our Lord, what his nature is, the Virgin Mary, what her nature is, what our relationship should be with them, what happens when you die, uh, what, is there a sacrament, what are the nature of the sacraments, um, uh, what about your own personal moral life, can you avoid sinning? There's, there's an incredible variety of religious doctrine that people have cooked up, you have to say, uh, just in our own country alone, much less uh, than in other countries. That's we, we have to posit those two facts. That we are religious people, but everybody disagrees about religion. The next, we're obliged to say that um, we do have a duty to try to seek out or to find the truth. Our Lord died on the cross in order to get us to heaven. Our Lord gave us a certain body of truths that, that he taught us, we call it revelation. It obviously makes a difference what we believe. If it didn't make a difference, Christ wouldn't have taught, God wouldn't have inspired the Bible. It makes a, And the early preachers of Christianity, the apostles, it makes a difference what we believe. If we look in the Bible, we will see that our Lord did not set up a system where everyone could be his own teacher. There's nothing in the Bible about interpreting the Bible for yourself, except a warning in the Bible, in the New Testament, against those who, who rest the scriptures to their own destruction, St. Peter wrote, because they, they interpret it the wrong way. If we, see in the, if we look in the Bible what the scriptures have to say about the church, we'll see there's kind, of a, there's kind of a plan that's given as to how you and I would be able to recognize the one true church of Christ out of all the false claimants. But we notice even before that, it's sort of presumed, almost. So you need to stop and think about it for a moment. There is only one church. Our Lord says, I will establish my church on St. Peter. 
not my churches, not all of my religions or not my denominations, but there is just one church. So there is, as usual, a real basic kind of a difference between the Catholic Church and all the other false religions. Most of the other false religions believe that uh, they say, oh yes, there is only one church. Who's a member of it? All those who are saved. And how do you get saved? When some one person says this, one person says that, that they disagree with each, with each other, how do you get saved? They believe there's one church that's invisible. You can't see it. There's no way of knowing exactly who's a member of it or not. And there are all these human organizations that don't really matter because they're just human, but this church of Christ is, is present but invisible. But our Lord says in the Gospel that it's, it's just not that way. In the Gospel, he speaks very clearly of a church, and as we'll see in a future lesson, of a church that, 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 that has a authority. That church which exists and which has authority, the historians uh, give you as the Catholic Church. Um, our textbook uses an interesting technique to kind of bring that home to us. When America was discovered in 1492, the only church that existed was a Catholic Church, which is an amazing, it's an astounding thought. When they discovered America, Columbus and, and his sailors, th there weren't any other religions. If one of the sailors had said, uh, well, I want to go to church to pray before we uh, get on the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, and I'm a, I'm a Methodist, so where's the Methodist church? Or I'm a Presbyterian, where's the Presbyterian church? Or I'm a Mormon, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Pentecostal. The, the people in Spain would just have looked. What are you talking about? That's the church. That's, the church is the church. The church is it. There weren't any other false religions. There had, of course, been heresies, but the nature of a heresy is that it rises up, it lasts for a while, and then it dies out again. There weren't in 1492, in, in, in all of Christendom, there weren't any lasting or perduring heresies. It was a time of peace in the church. And then all these religions that people have today didn't exist back then. They just weren't around. Now, right away that gives us a clue to the question, which church did Christ found? Because our Lord said, I am with you all days to the foundations, to the, to the ends of the world, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So our Lord promised a church that would last until the end of the world. So any of these false religions, which don't date to him, or any false religion which began and then died out, would not fit into the category of the promise that Christ made. So it can't be a true religion. So that's, uh, that, that's, that's almost one simple and, and very, very basic proof for the nature of the church. So you have, after America was discovered, you have Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, um, denying some of the teachings of the church, figuring out, because of his own personal anguish, problems that he had, they were not unique to him, but they inspired him to break away from the church and found his own religion. He was struggling with the idea of, how do I, a sinner, get to heaven? I, I, I try to be good, and then I, I be bad. I try to be good, and then I be bad. And he was always kind of going back and forth in his, in his own personal moral life. So he came up with the idea, it doesn't matter. Don't try to be good. You can't be good. Just go ahead and be bad, but even have an even greater trust in Christ. He's going to save you anyway. Uh, that was his unique contribution to religious theory. And based on that false premise, all these other Protestant churches have come up who all teach basically the same idea of salvation by trusting in Christ as your personal Savior without any uh, um, virtue or keeping commandments being required on your part. So that's uh, uh, Martin Luther and then the Episcopal Church in our country was the Anglican Church in England that was founded by a Catholic too, by a Catholic king, Henry VIII. Um, 
who wanted to uh, divorce his wife so that he could marry another woman and have an, provide an heir for the throne of England. Uh, John Calvin began the Presbyterian Church. The Baptists were started in Germany shortly after Martin Luther. Martin Luther was really surprised because these people were claiming that it was not right to baptize babies and that only adults should be baptized. And um, Martin Luther had presumed, without ever thinking it through, that everyone would follow his teaching. But they made it real clear to him that, well, you're not the Pope either. If there's no Pope, you're not the Pope, but we're going to follow what we want to follow. And then all these religions started. All these religions. That's, that's where the Baptist idea came from. Baptist religion itself started in Rhode Island. It's an American uh, church. And then, then, then ever since then, there have been more and more churches uh, founded, and it has not stopped yet today. Church of Scientology, say, or something like that. It's really a sect or a cult, but um, uh, these churches are still going on today. But because it matters what Christ said, because the truth matters, we have to try to get to the bottom of it. How can we find the one true church which our Lord has established? We know then already that from Scripture there's only one church. We know that historically that is the Catholic Church. What else do we know from Scripture? I want, uh, second of all tonight, to give you a little um, kind of a diagram. We'll study it some more in some greater detail next um, next year in January when, when we resume our classes. Um, a little bit of a diagram for the nature of the church itself as to how of all these claimants you can say that the institution Christ founded is the Roman uh, Catholic Church. Not the modern church, Vatican II, not any one of these Protestant sects, but it's the traditional living Roman Catholic Church. Uh, before even opening the Bible to see what does Christ have to say in the scriptures about religion, we, we could reasonably uh, figure out for ourselves that our Lord would not have gone to all the trouble of the Incarnation to become a man, to die on the cross, only to preach for three years, and then to leave it up to people to figure out stuff on their own as to what they were supposed to do or not supposed to do. That's what the Protestants claim. If you think of it, it's pretty silly that our Lord would have set up a system that would lead people into error so that there wouldn't ever really be any way of knowing the truth. No, if our Lord set up a, a religious system, and he did, and he says in the Bible that he will, then it's something, it is a system that is clear, it's obvious to be seen still today, it's not invisible as they claim, um, it has particularly the quality of authority, and if we follow this system, this church that he has established, we can save our souls. Real simple and real logical. Otherwise our Lord would have been sowing the seeds of confusion. People do that, but God doesn't sow the seeds of confusion. That's... Um, an argument from the very beginning we call a priori. A posteriori, from, from behind, when we look into the scriptures, we can see that our Lord spoke about his church quite a bit, and it has four distinguishing characteristics or marks. We, in, in the in Nicene Creed, we, in, on Sundays, we profess our faith in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, it would have these, these, these characteristics um, that stand out from others by these four qualities that that this church would possess and this church alone would possess it. No other religion would possess it. In the 17th chapter of St. John's Gospel, St. John describing our, our Lord's, um, reporting what our Lord said at the Last Supper, our Lord prayed, May they be one, Father, as I and me and thou, as I and thee and thou in me. The, the Catholic Church has, first of all, the quality of being one or unity. That is to say, not being divided, not being split up into many. Unity about what and what causes? Obviously, we're all different people, different backgrounds, different personalities, different ages and educations. That's not the kind of a unity that we're speaking of. 
the unity we're speaking of in the Catholic Church um, is a unity of belief and of morals and of worship. That's what a religion is, if you think about it. What's it? A religion is a group of people that all believe the same way, more or less. They worship the same way. Uh, they have the same moral code they try to adhere to. And also they have the same government. We have, we have, we have to add that. There there be belief, morals, uh, uh, worship, and um, government. In the Protestant sects, as well as in the new religion, there are all sorts of, uh, within one religion, there are all sorts of divisions on those very things. So in the modern church, you can meet a priest who doesn't believe in the resurrection, and you can meet someone who has a perfectly orthodox faith, personally, in the resurrection of Christ. And uh, in, the, in, the, in the Protestant church, you might, you might meet some, uh, there, there could be a preacher in one religion, who uh, teaches one thing in another religion, and in the same denomination, rather, in a different church, preacher who preaches quite something quite different. Why? Because there isn't any unity. Why is there no unity? There's no common authority that everybody, everybody accepts. The same thing with worship. Of the Catholic Church, it is said, and it is true, and it's a beautiful thought, that no matter where you go, no matter what, uh, where you go on the face of the earth, the Catholic Church always has the same face that she presents to people, the same worship. Um, so that today, if you go to a true Catholic Mass in any place in the world, it's offered the same way. It's a traditional Latin Mass. But one parish church now is different from another. They're all, their forms of worship are quite different. And the same thing with the Protestants, who vary from a Mass very much like the modern Catholic one, uh, or also a, a very, very casual worship service. There's no unity of belief, no unity of worship, nor are there be unity of government within them, too. Um, this lack of unity, this presence of all these divisions, so that within a sect or a particular Protestant denomination, there'd be bitter arguments about belief. Is evolution true? Um, is the Bible literally true? Is the Bible from the Holy Ghost? The Baptists are arguing about that. So that would be that would be one example of it. Nothing like that happens in the Catholic Church. I'm sure, there's heretics that disagree and that leave her, but the Church herself has a real clear body of belief that's accepted by everybody. But only the Catholic Church has that. And the modern church doesn't qualify for that. So that's the first that's the first quality. And the Catholic Church qualifies as possessing this quality. She is one quality of um of being undivided or united. Next, uh to be holy. Be perfect, our Lord says, as my heavenly Father is perfect. To be holy means to be close to God or like unto God. The Catholic Church is holy in her head, she is holy in her members, and she's holy in her end the purpose for which she exists. She's also holy in the means that she uses to get us there. So our Lord, on the Sermon on the Mount, said, be perfect. Our Lord is holding up a real high ideal for us. He wants us to be truly holy, to be, to be as holy as we can possibly be, um, to be like our Lord, to be like God the Father. So we are holy in our, in our head or our founder. That's Jesus Christ. So, all of the different um, founders of these different churches founded in the last four or five hundred years, some, uh, some of the, uh, the, the individuals who belonged to them were fairly, uh, or founded them rather, were fairly good men. An example of that might may, may be um, Charles Wesley who founded the Methodist Church. Uh, he was an, an Anglican priest in England and in, and in the United States, Anglican minister. And he was a, a very virtuous man, a very good man, a very devout man. But he would be the exception. You have to say, without meaning to sound prejudice, you have to say that the majority of the Protestant churches were founded by men who were uh, moral reprobates, like Luther or, or uh, Henry VIII, men of really filthy, filthy mouth and, and really awful morals and 
did some pretty pretty disgusting things. But even a man who is a personally virtuous, like the founder of the Methodist religion, who is he in comparison with Jesus Christ? Not much. Not much. Our Lord is God and man. He's absolutely perfect. He's totally holy. And our church is founded by Jesus Christ. The Methodist church was not. Or else it would have been in existence in, in 33 A.D. So we, we are, we're holy in our head, the founder of our church. We're holy in our members. Not that, when we say we're holy in our members, we do not mean to claim that Catholics are better than other people. God forbid. If you're a Catholic, you know that's not true. If you spend any time around Catholics, you know that's not true either. Actually, we tend to come off a little bit worse. I, my, my, uh, my impression is that um, in comparison with members of other religions, uh, pretty devout, say devout Protestants, church-going Protestants, Catholics very often come, come off as, as somewhat worse. They say that one of the proofs for the Catholic Church as being the true religion is, that, is, is the Catholics themselves. If we have managed to destroy the Church in 2,000 years, it's because it really is of God. Otherwise, if it were human, we would have, we would have just destroyed it. No, we don't make any claims to perfection the part of our membership in the Catholic Church or even the hierarchy or the leadership. We say that it's a miracle that we haven't destroyed the Church because of our sinfulness, our imperfections. When we say we're holy in our members, it's this that the Catholic Church has constantly, consistently, for 2,000 years of history, produced men and women of heroic sanctity coming up from among the ranks and sometimes the most unexpected places who gave their all to, um, to serve God and to serve neighbor. There's no other religion in the world, Christian or non-Christian, that comes close to the witness that the Catholic Church has in the way of saints. Uh, and there are very few other religions that claim to have saints the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox. That's about it, really. Um, as the Catholic Church does. When we have saints, our, uh, uh, someone is declared a saint only after a long, tedious process of study and many miracles. True, objective, um, uh, scientific miracles have to be produced, for which there's no possible human explanation, uh, like the miracles I spoke of a couple of weeks ago, like the miracle at Lourdes. Um, those are saints. Catholic Church has zillions of saints. And we honor them on All Saints Day. Now, in addition, in addition to all of these saints that the Church has produced in every age, we have the unspoken heroes. We have the mothers and the fathers. We have the single people. We have particularly the nuns and the priests, who, when they died, were more or less forgotten, but who spent their entire life heroically, uh, to a degree over and above average or normal or expected, gave everything for the service of others. That's how there was this whole big charitable system run by the church until the changes of hospitals, orphanages, and schools. That was all fueled by women who gave up their right to marry and have a family, who uh, wedded themselves to our Lord mystically and served him in, in the least of his brethren. It's a real beautiful example. Uh, now, what was it that, you know, that inspired people to do that, make all those sacrifices, so that we could say truly that they were living saints, these nuns, these priests, and these hidden lay people, too, say, in times of persecution. It's, it's the Catholic faith. They did it for the sake of the Catholic faith. And no one else, no other religion could come anywhere near, just in numbers, to this kind of a sacrifice. What motivates them? What gives them the means? Ours is the true religion. We're doing it for the truth. And we have a real, a real help from God we call sanctifying grace uh, that enables us to do that. So we're holy in our members. We're holy in the end or the purpose for which we exist. The Catholic Church exists to get people into heaven. Why does the modern Catholic Church exist? People aren't clear. 
But if you follow their doings, you get the impression that they exist to, to make life better here on Earth. That's nice, but that's not the reason why we exist. That's not our first purpose. We're here to get people to heaven. So the end or the purpose of the church's existence is very clear. To save souls. To save souls. Protestants wouldn't have that concept because they believe that you save your soul personally by a conversion experience and that it's nothing to do with joining a church. So they're kind of like out of the ballpark, you might say. Um, the Catholic Church is, is holy in the means that she uses, uh, the means um, employed by the church to help us to get to heaven. Keeping the commandments, Sunday Mass, the abstinence, fasting, we spoke of last week, study, prayer, examination of conscience, thinking about things, uh, asking yourself questions and accusing yourself of your faults to the priest and the confessional. The Catholic Church is holy in that sense, too. They say, no one ever left the Catholic Church looking for a higher ideal of holiness. But a lot of people leave the Catholic Church looking for a lower ideal of holiness. Because, I mean, the standards are really, really high. And very often when people leave the Church because of a personal moral problem, they, they, um, they, they, they claim that it's because they disagree with this doctrine or that. But it's, that's not the real reason. The real reason is that they were unable to live up to the doctrine of the, and the morals of the church. And because they were unable to live up to the church's morals, for that very reason, they decided to leave. And then they, then they, then they, they picked some kind of a fight. The classic story is a story of a, it was a great Catholic uh, preacher, Bishop Sheen, who had a TV show. He was the first... Yeah, the first religious TV show in America when television first came into the fore in the 50s. And once Bishop Sheen, who was known throughout America, um, ran into a woman in the airport, and, um, I think it's at the O'Hara Airport, and um, Chicago. She uh, got talking to him, and um, she, uh, she said that she, she used to be a Catholic. And he said, oh, yes. Yes, I used to be a Catholic, but uh, I don't believe in confession. That's the reason I left the Catholic Church. I just don't believe that a man could have the power to forgive sins. And he looked at her and he said, How long have you been divorced, my dear? And she was totally shocked. So how did you know I was divorced and remarried? And he just smiled at her because that's what people do. They leave the church because of the high moral standards that they can't live up to. And then they um, uh, fall down and they find up some kind of little, little excuse they can throw up to themselves. The Catholic Church holds very high ideals. The other saying that we have is that it is difficult, not impossible and not too difficult, but it is difficult to live as a Catholic. That is true. It's much easier to live as a member of another religion. It makes very little demand upon you in your daily life. But it is very easy to die as a Catholic because at the end when you're dying, you have all this religious consolation of a life well-led and the particular help that only the Catholic Church gives to those who are dying. Um, that's something we'll see later on, the whole question of last rites, extreme unction, the anointing, confession. Uh, not a question just about reading the Bible or visiting with a minister or praying in your own words, but the, the sacraments. That's what uh, Catholicism gives us, which brings Christ to us, even when we're beyond being able to speak ourselves or to hear. So that's the second mark of the church, the mark of sanctity or holiness. Um, in addition to to those, we have to say that our doctrines are as well are holy, um, because as, as we saw last time, the sublime teaching of Christ in comparison with with any other teacher. The next mark of the church is that of being 
Catholic. That ended up being our name. It started out as kind of a nickname, but now it's a name for the church itself, Catholic. It got that name because from the beginning, there were those who disagreed with the church and who taught some strange new doctrine. They were a group of people in a particular place at a particular time, as opposed to the whole, the whole big group of everybody who held the same belief. So there was a universal church, and then there was a local little uh, minority sect that differed, that deviated from the truth. So the whole universal church got the name from the Greek, means according to the whole, Catholic. So the, the church is named, the Christian church is named Catholic specifically to distinguish it from Protestants, those who protest or those, those who disagree or won't accept. Ours is a religion of everybody, you might say. And then after you have the, the vast majority, oh yeah, then, there, then there's this and this and this and this. These are the people outside of the church. But ours is the religion of the whole. The name Catholic came because of this. Before that, uh, came the name of, of Christian. Um, uh, but uh, because of the divisions in the church and because of the heresies, the name Catholic, for the majority religion, you might say, has stuck. But Catholic is, is, is not only a, a handy name, it is also, um, it is also a um, description of, of the nature of the church herself as, as Christ willed to establish it. It's Catholic. It's for everybody. It's universal. Ours is not a religion of a particular place or time. Um, but the modern church is it's a 20th century modern thing. It's almost American uh, or Western. It's, it's, um, it's cultural. And then as things change, that will kind of change and die out too. In a sense, it already is. The different Protestant and false religions rise up for a while. They're the Puritans who founded America. There are no Puritans today. Totally died out. Interesting. Totally died out. Protestant religions come and go. Ours is a universal religion. It's for everybody. Um, many, uh, if not most, of the Protestant religions in Europe started in a particular country. If you were in England, you were Church of England or Anglican. If you were in Scandinavia or Germany and you were a Protestant, you would be a Lutheran. Um, if you were in France, you'd be a Huguenot, a member of the Reformed Church. If you were in Scotland or Switzerland, you'd be a Presbyterian. It depended on where you lived. Catholic Church was never that way. It's universal. It's for everybody. It traverses all lines of um, geography. Still today, there are um, certain religions that one associates more with a certain part of the country. Say that the preachers on TV, if they're white, they always have a southern accent. Of course, if they're black, they do too, for that matter. But you, you rarely, if ever, hear a Protestant preacher on TV, any one of these shows you tune into, who's not from the south. It's kind of like the southern thing, which is interesting. Um, Protestant churches in this country tend still today to be pretty strictly divided up according to money and social class. Glendale, which is right next door to Sharonville, is one of the toniest suburbs or places to live in Cincinnati. Um, it has two main churches, the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church. Uh, there, there, there is a, like a little Methodist church and a little Baptist church, but they're very small because if a Methodist or a Baptist moves into the Glendale, and wants to move in the right circles, make the right friends, get the right invitations, that person will join one of those two, two churches. That's just how it is. It's for wealthy people. 
or people that would like to think that they're wealthy who want to at least hang around with wealthy people. That that's how it goes. Whereas in our church, it's, it's interesting, and uh, this church, of course, gets people from all over the place, but it's, it's a microcosm of, of true Christianity. On a given Sunday, you will literally have someone who's on welfare receiving communion next to someone who's a millionaire. I've often given communion that way. Very interesting. There's no, no thought at all about social or money, anything like that. It doesn't make a bit of difference. No one even thinks about it in, in, in Catholic terms. Protestant churches is very, very important still today because theirs is a religion that's divided up. Ours is universal. It's according to the whole for everybody. There aren't, there aren't any, any divisions like that. Um, last of all, we're universal as regards time, obviously. If someone came from the 5th century, say, and assisted at our Mass tomorrow, he would recognize it as his Mass. That was it. Uh, th- there'd be no problem at all. Someone came from the 5th century, Christian from the 5th century, and he went to a Protestant church or to a Novus Ordo, he would wonder, what are they doing? And then when he heard the doctrine, if that were translated for him, he said, wait a minute, that's not our faith. That's not the faith that we believe. We don't believe that. Uh, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong. Um, a church that Christ established has to be the same all the way through. Now, the modernists, as well as the Protestants, deny that. The modernists specifically believe that that truth changes from era to era and year to year, as what was true yesterday is not true today. We don't believe that. We believe that truth is always the same, and the truth of the Lord abideth forever. That's a little bit about the quality of the church as being Catholic, universal, spread throughout the whole world. Finally, uh, the fourth mark is that of being apostolic. Apostolic means being traced back to the apostles in, and having the organization or the discipline of the, of, the, the, of the apostles. A church which is a monarchy as opposed to a democracy, as many of the non-Catholic religions are. The church is apostolic in the sense that it's founded upon priests and bishops who trace their ordination in the unbroken line back to one of the twelve apostles. Myself as a bishop, um, consecration could be traced back all the way through many, many centuries, finally to come to one of the twelve apostles. That's our belief as Catholics. That's the um, part of the essence of the sacrament that makes a man a priest holy orders. We're the only ones that have that. The Protestants, having broken off from the church, do not have what we call the apostolic succession or the passing on of orders or the laying on of hands of a bishop. Um, they don't possess that. Secondly, we're apostolic as regards our government because the government of the church uh, is not a, not a democracy. It's not a congregational affair, but rather it's a monarchy. In God's plan, it's meant to be the pope and then the bishops and the, and the clergy and the faithful. It's not meant to be that... that, that um, there would be, say, a group or a committee of people, and they would, and they would run the church. No, the church is run by the hierarchy, as a monarchy. Um, thirdly, we are apostolic as regards, and this kind of touches the, the quality of being Catholic, which spoke of, as regards our worship and our faith and our, and our morals and everything else. What we do today goes back to the apostles. There's nothing new which is taught or practiced. There's a lot of development, further explanation, detail, will, but the essential truths are all those which were preached by the apostles in the first century, which too is a remarkable thought. So in that sense as well, we are, uh, we are an apostolic uh, religion. So those are the four marks of the church. These four marks are found in scripture as well as in the, uh, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, which comes from the church's first great council, 
which took place in the early part of the 4th century, right after the persecutions were over. So this is how the church can be recognized anywhere at all. Um, and um, that the church would have to be recognized, we've, we've seen already just from a logical point of view, Father would have to have set up a church, a, a, a means of knowing what the truth is. We hope you're enjoying tonight's episode of From the Pulpit. Please be sure to visit truerestoration.org and click on the True Restoration media link to view our available streaming videos and membership subscriptions for purchase and direct download. These purchases will help us continue to bring you the best content and show guests in the Catholic world today. And now, we present the continuation of tonight's program. In the secret of today's Mass, the celebrant prays, Make us worthy, O Lord, to offer these gifts to Thee, and through the mysteries of the Most Holy Rosary, make us so keep in mind the life, passion, and glory of Thy only begotten Son, that we may be made worthy of His promises. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. We ask literally in the Latin to recollect to remember, <clears throat> to think about, to meditate upon, not to forget in the secret, but also in the collect of the Mass of the Rosary. And that collect we recite customarily at the end of our rosary. To remember. It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? That is to say that the busier we get and the older we get, the more difficult it is to remember and yet, if we are busy, it's probably because of responsibilities, and it's important to remember. And the older we get, it is important as well not to forget, because some of those memories are precious and must be passed on and must not be forgotten. It is one thing to forget this or that practical detail of life if the scola, say, doesn't remember what particular introit to intone. But it is another thing if a whole nation were to forget the Holy Mass and the Rosary and all of their Catholic faith. That is a tragedy of forgetfulness. Have you ever seen the license plate of the Canadian province of Quebec. It has their little motto on it, Je me souviens. I remember. And whenever I see that, I always think to myself, my friend, what do you remember if you have forgotten your Catholic faith? For Quebec is the very model of the Vatican II Revolution, not in a generation as in Ireland, but in five years, they forgot everything. And it is all now just a museum of what once was lovely to look at, but nothing living inside. What do you remember just that you're French and that you don't like people that speak English? They've pretty much made a religion out of that today. And isn't that sad to have forgotten your faith, your Catholic faith? Some of you 
have the great grace to live, to raise your family in the happy days before the changes of Vatican II. And you remember, you are precious to us. Some of you remember what it was to live during the reign of the Holy Father, Pope Pius XII, to have the Mass, to have parishes and churches and a hierarchy and schools and all of the rest. Your presence amongst us today, you who remember, is a precious thing. And we ask you, please be in no hurry to leave us, for you are a living link with our Catholic heritage. Others of you, much younger, grew up perhaps in the Novus Ordo and only came back to Catholicism later, and you remember growing up hearing nothing at all about the rosary or confession or the sacrifice of the Mass. And both of these groups, you who are on in years now but still remember, and you who are much younger, both of these groups have something new to remember. You have seen the victories of our Blessed Lady's Rosary in your own life and in your own lifetime. How God has blessed our church. They wanted to destroy Catholicism and we wouldn't go along with it. And St. Gertrude the Great Mission and then church was established the late 70s, and our first church dedicated in 1980. And our church today counts amongst its members little children who remember their catechism and prayers, last Sunday's first communicant, five or six years old, all the way up to Fred Hauserman, a hundred years old, and all of us in between doing our best not to forget. You remember the Leonine prayers, which were said by the prescription of Pope Pius XI for the end of the persecution of the church in Russia, and how during all of those dark years after Vatican II formally abolished these prayers as part of their document on the liturgy, we kept them up, praying our three Hail Marys and the rest, and how quite unexpectedly in the midst here of our own internecine feuds, the prayer was heard and the persecution ended. And a short time later, the Berlin Wall came down. And we thanked God for that. And we gave our Blessed Mother the glory of it. And that now, Bishop Sanborn is about to receive two Russian seminarians into his seminary. And Bishop Piverunis is about to ordain a Russian seminarian from Moscow, this month. Thank God for the end of that persecution and the victory of the persevering prayer of those Hail Marys. As we grow up, and God grant it, grow old in our faith, how gratifying it must be for all of us to realize, it's just a change of mindset, to realize that the revolution of Vatican II did not work, and that even today acknowledging defeat 
some of its architects are busy trying, for their own bad purposes, to dismantle it. And down it comes, brick by brick, like the Berlin Wall. And the old modernists who are still to be found in seminaries and parishes and in the hierarchy and in Rome, why they are forced, these old Stalinists, to see their work of a lifetime undone before their very eyes. We must never forget to remember the victories of the Mother of God, especially concerning and by means of the Holy Rosary. So, there are many of you who remember how the Rosary in the 1960s and 70s was downgraded and degraded and mocked. And there was even the odd priest in those heady days of the Revolution of 68 who ripped apart Rosary beads in front of your eyes during the so-called homily of their service. And now, the rosary has quietly come back again. And with it comes victories accomplished and more on promise. I think that the last major attack of the rosary took place not that long ago, during the closing years of John Paul II, not the great, uh, except a great heretic. He wanted to change the number of the mysteries of the rosary and to introduce a new set of Gnostic or New Age luminous mysteries, a favorite term of theirs, so that there should be 20 instead of 15, and thus to destroy the link between the Psalter of David, the 150 Psalms, which are the backbone of the church's worship and her divine office and public prayer, and the 150 Hail Marys of the angelic Psalter, as St. Louis de Montfort calls it, the Most Holy Rosary. Now, someone pointed this out to me recently. I've been so struck with this thought. Now, when our Blessed Lady appeared at Fatima, she asked the children to say a third of the rosary every day, which means in the true rosary, five decades, 50 Hail Marys. But if you were following this false pope's false new rosary in his count, and you said one-third of the rosary, how many Hail Marys would you then be saying each day? Sixty-six. Point six, the number of the beast, the Antichrist. Six, six, six. As I was preaching last spring, this series of sermons about to conclude now on the meditations of the rosary, I came across a spectacularly ignorant article in the Novus Ordo paper of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, which Father Jakarta subscribes to still, as he is from that city, written by a classic old Stalinist named Skelba, who's one of the revolutionary bishops who hasn't yet realized that it's time for him to be moving on. Well, in his article, he wrote that he was terribly worried 
that people were back to saying the rosary again. And if you can believe it, even in the Novus Ordo Church, they're saying the rosary in church, in front of what they consider to be the Blessed Sacrament. And in his ignorance, this revolutionary dismisses the rosary as a Marian prayer or devotion, which couldn't possibly be mixed up with anything to do with our Lord. Imagine, could there be a link between Jesus and Mary, between our Lord and Our Lady? Not for this man. See how the Novus Ordo works. They always want to divide. They accuse us of being divisive because we will not accept our new religion. And yet they are the ones who are always creating opposition and making division. Whereas we calmly have clung to the truth all of these years. And the truth of the rosary is that whilst it is Our Lady's prayer and most pleasing to the Queen of Heaven, it is not so much a prayer to Our Lady as a prayer with Our Lady. And by means of Our Lady, she is a mother who is teaching her children every time we pray a decade. She tells us the story. And she teaches us again. She teaches us like children how not to fidget and get distracted, to keep the beads in the fingers moving and the lips moving with the beautiful vocal prayers of the Our Father and the Hail Mary. And at the same time, with the head and with the heart, to meditate, to recollect, to remember, to ruminate upon, to go over one of the mysteries and some truth of it for ourselves concerning the incarnation, concerning the Holy Gospel, concerning the life of our Lord and of Our Lady. For us Catholics, we know nothing better than to pray the rosary when possible in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, especially solemnly exposed in the monstrance. The Holy Eucharist is both a sacrifice and a sacrament. And our Lord, in instituting it, bids us, remember me. Do you see then the link, even on the first level, between the rosary, remembering the life of our Lord and our Lady, and the Holy Eucharist, which by means of the adorable sacrifice and sacrament of the altar, enables us not just to remember, but to be part of it, to see it present, made alive before our eyes. Everything we're meditating upon in the rosary actually happens again at the altar during the holy sacrifice of the Mass. How could they be linked any more closely? When you carry your rosary with you, you are carrying not only your little portable rope ladder to heaven, you are carrying as well your altar and your communion rail and your tabernacle and our Lord and our Lady. All of that. Remember that. Our Lord comes to us only by and with his mother, and when she comes, her only work is to lead us to her divine Son. Who could ever separate the two? Remember that. Furthermore, remember, too, that while the prayers after low mass were 
set up by the Pope to be said until the end of the persecution, even many priests have forgotten this, Pope Leo XIII commanded that the rosary during October, and this law has never been rescinded or changed, but hardly anyone follows it anymore. It's very sad. They've forgotten it. The rosary was to be said, the Holy Father commanded, either in the morning during Mass or in the evening before the Blessed Sacrament exposed every day of October. And this is what, in our own little way, as much as we can, we try to do here at St. Gertrude the Great. How good the good God is that our Lord has enabled us to live long enough to see the victory. And the modernists have been forced, at least some of them, to witness their own defeat. Remember this when you feel cast down and a little bit worried about the way things are going in the church and in the country. Oh, I remember one last thing. It's not by participating in some phony process set up by the secret societies that you are going to save our land or society. It's by remembering to pray your rosary. It is the rosary which even in modern times saved several countries, Brazil, Austria, from communism. And why couldn't that happen again today? Why aren't we speaking more about rosary praying and a little bit less about phony politics. St. Francis de Sales, I reminded the children of this on, uh, on Wednesday, and I want to remind you of it as well. St. Francis de Sales says, pray the rosary with your guardian angel. And I told the children, well, remember, your angel prays a little slowly, so don't go too fast. And remember, your angel is right here, so you don't need to say the Hail Mary too loud, or it will get in his ear. Say the rosary slowly, and say the rosary softly, and say the rosary with your angel. If the rosary is the angelic psalter, the psalms of the angels, how should you be praying it when you say it aloud? Imagine if you came to Tenebrae at Holy Week, or you came to Vespers this afternoon, for most of you, I'd have to say, imagine indeed if you did come to Vesper someday. But imagine if you did, and you came into church, and you heard Father Chicada in the sanctuary, and he was chanting very quickly and very loud, very loudly. And Mr. Hall, maybe, and Patrick were in the back, and they, of course, were going very, very slowly, as is their wont, and very, but also very, very loudly. And if I were someplace in between, and I had my own pace, a third pace. And I wanted to be heard. And I wanted to direct it. Hearing such a cacophony, you would say, who could possibly pray in a church like this? And out you'd go, and perhaps with reason. When you pray, make these beautiful words a melody so that meditation comes easily. Your angel hears you. He's right here. Say it softly. Your angel hears you 
and is praying with you, don't speed up. He has, he has a hard time catching up with you when you do. Say it slowly. But most of all, say it all of you together. Let us remember with gratitude that we have the rosary, that we can pray the rosary and should with our guardian angel. And in praying the rosary, we have the blessed sacrament made present to us again by means of a devout communion of desire, a spiritual communion. The things we have lived to see, the victories for which we barely think to thank the Mother of God for. Remember all of these, won't you? The next time you pray, oh, and remember too, to pray well. God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed, but more importantly, found informative and beneficial this week's presentation of From the Pulpit. For more information on the ministry of Bishop Dolan, you may write to him at the following. Most Reverend Daniel Dolan, 4900 Rialto Road, R-I-A-L-T-O. Westchester, Ohio, 45069. You may also visit St. Gertrude the Great's website at sgg.org. Bishop Dolan may also be heard on the Restoration Radio Network show, Devotions with Bishop Dolan, which airs on Saturday once per month throughout the network season. His Excellency has also made occasional appearances on our flagship show, True Restoration. We will be on air one week from this evening at the same time and will present another installment of From the Pulpit. We at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, at True Restoration, or via email at mail at truerestoration.org. Until next time, keep the faith. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.